The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to take a moment to extend a special welcome to our military service personnel who join us each week from remote locations around the world. Thank you for being with us again. My guest today is going to pull the covers back on what we think we know about the growing nuclear threat in Iran, as well as instability in the Middle East following the Arab Spring. In a few moments, one of our country's most accomplished diplomats, a man who has played a major role in shaping U.S. policy in the Middle East under five administrations, Mr. Dennis Ross, will be joining us. By way of background... Ross was born into a Catholic and Jewish household in San Francisco and grew up just across the bay in Marin County. He earned his undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of California at Los Angeles, where he specialized in Soviet decision-making. He's also the recipient of multiple doctorate degrees from Brandeis, Amherst, Syracuse University, and the Jewish Theological Seminary. As I mentioned earlier, Ross has served our nation's foreign policy interests under five presidents. During the Carter administration, Ross worked for Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, where he recommended an active U.S. role in the Persian Gulf. Under President Reagan, Ross served as Director of Near East and South Asian Affairs at the National Security Council, as well as Deputy Director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. Ross accepted the role of Director of Policy Planning in the State Department under President George Bush and became Special Middle East Coordinator in the Clinton administration, where he was instrumental in reaching the 1995 interim agreement between the Israelis and Palestinians, as well as the 1997 Hebron Accord. He was also largely responsible for the Israel-Jordan Treaty of Peace and for facilitating talks between Israel and, Israel and Syria at that time. More recently, Ross worked on the National Security Council as a special assistant to President Obama, where one of his areas of specialization was our relationship with Iran. At the end of 2011, Ross stepped down from this post. He is presently a prolific writer, commentator, and is a counselor at the prestigious Washington Institute. Lastly, I do want to add that Mr. Ross is the recipient of the State Department's highest award, the Presidential Medal for Distinguished Federal Civilian Service. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report one of our nation's most skilled diplomats, Mr. Dennis Ross. Welcome to the program, Mr. Ross. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, I, I want to take full advantage of the time we have with you today. So let me begin by asking you about recent remarks that you and James Jeffrey uh, made. Uh, you both are national security advisors, and you both seem to be in agreement that if diplomatic efforts to step down Iran's nuclear program fail, the Obama administration will make a military strike this year. And I believe you both say this strike will happen before the end of 2013. Do I have that right? 
Well, yeah, I guess uh, let me put it in some perspective. I say it because I think this year is likely to be decisive given the pace of the Iranian nuclear program. Uh, and I do believe that prior to the time that we would use force, we will make a major effort to see if there's a diplomatic way out of this. I'm, I'm convinced of this because the president has adopted an objective of prevention, meaning that we would prevent the Iranians from having a nuclear weapons capability, not containment, meaning that we would live with it. And once you have an objective of prevention, and, and if the Iranian nuclear program continues at the pace it is, there's going to come a point by the end of this year where we will not know whether we could prevent the Iranians from presenting the world with a fait accompli in terms of having nuclear weapons. The point at which we, we lose a level of confidence about whether or not we can know that they're moving quickly and in a way that we could prevent is the point at which I don't think the president's allowed, will, will be convinced that we can allow ourselves to get to. But I do think before we reach that point that there'll be much more of a, a diplomatic effort and probably even a diplomatic initiative uh, by us to satisfy ourselves that we did everything we could to avoid the use of force, and the only reason it ended up happening was because, in effect, the Iranians brought this on themselves. Mr. Ross, I don't, I don't want to come across as naive because I'm, I'm far from, but I don't understand when people say we could use diplomatic measures to uh, prevent an event from occurring. What, what kind of diplomatic measures are we talking about? We're not talking about the usual uh, economic embargoes, are we? No, no. What I'm getting at is the following. At some point, we put on the table a proposal that in a sense, says to the Iranians, you say you want civil nuclear power. You can have civil nuclear power, but it's going to be constrained by a series of restrictions and transparency measures to satisfy us and the rest of the world that you can't convert that civil nuclear power into a nuclear weapons capability. So if, in fact, what you say you want is simply civil nuclear power, you can have that. And I suspect at a certain point we will put a proposal like that on the table, uh, and if they turn it down, we'll be prepared to make it public so that the Iranian public can see that what the Iranians say they want is not really the case, and the world can see that as well. Now, if, in fact, they genuinely only want civil nuclear power, or if, in fact, they realize that the price of not accepting this is that force is going to be used, then maybe they will accept a diplomatic way out of what is right now an impasse. And in a sense, what I'm saying to you is when I talk about diplomatic initiative, I'm talking about going beyond where we've been in terms of what we put on the table. Uh, what we've put on the table so far has been much more of a, a kind of step-by-step approach designed to see if we can build confidence, mutual confidence, but not necessarily change the character of the Iranian nuclear program or go to the kind of end game that I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting an end game proposal, which will clarify the situation, the Iranians tend to complain that what we ask of them is that they make moves on their nuclear program that they regard as being significant, but we're not prepared to reward them in, in kind with a kind of lifting of economic sanctions, which is what they seek. Now, we, in the step-by-step approach, say, yeah, if you take a step, say, only on your 20% enrichment, that doesn't change the character of your program. It sends a signal that you might do something positive, but in return for a signal that might be something positive, that doesn't warrant us lifting the economic pressures. Maybe it warrants us providing you spare parts for your civilian aircraft. Maybe it warrants us being prepared to do more in terms of uh, assistance for um, 
modernizing their their research reactor in Tehran. But it doesn't warrant a lifting of the economic sanctions. And there is a kind of asymmetry here where we want them to, to signal something that moves in a different direction. They want a very big reward for that. If if uh, we see them doing something that is is potentially positive but falls well short of changing the character of the program, we're not going to reward them in a in a kind of meaningful way. So I want to move away from what I call the step-by-step to what would be an endgame proposal to see is there a deal possible there or not. And I well, think well, I the, think it's worse than we're not going to reward them. I think we move into punitive measures, don't we? Well, we already are in punitive measures in terms of, of the economic Well, I think sanctions. a strike is the ultimate punitive measure, isn't it? Well, it certainly is. It is certainly. It is. But what we're saying, understand the Obama administration is the third consecutive administration that has said the Iranians can't have this capability. There are six Security Council resolutions saying they can't have this capability. There are 12 uh, resolutions from the Board of Governors of the IAEA saying they have to stop. They're in violation of all those. That's right. Well, no, nothing seems to be slowing it down. That's correct. And I think that's why you make the prediction that a strike may may eventually be inevitable this year. Well, my concern is that as long as the Iranians don't fully appreciate that, they're making the use of force more likely, not less likely. Um, I think one of the keys here, my own judgment is, the economic pressures have concentrated the Iranian mind, but they're not sufficient to get the supreme leader to change course. And what could get him to change course is for him to understand, look, at the end of the day, we want diplomacy to succeed, but if it doesn't, we're prepared to use force. And Iran should understand they are going to be the big losers if that's the case. Right. The essence of coercive diplomacy working is that the threats you make have to be believed. That's right. And, you know, that's one of the points that we're going to get to. Uh, we have to take a short break. But when we come back, I'd like to talk about that, because if you make threats for years and years and years, you're a little bit in the situation of the boy who cried wolf. At what point do they know that we really mean it? Uh, that's always the real dilemma, I think, when it comes to these kinds of uh, diplomatic measures. You're listening to the Costa Report. Just about everyone knows that fruits and vegetables are good for our health, but not everyone knows how to build a healthier plate. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, a cookbook author and culinary expert. For each meal, nutrition experts recommend filling half of your plate with fruits and veggies. Whether it's fresh berries with your breakfast cereal, a wrap filled with your favorite roasted vegetables for lunch, or a medley of crunchy veggies for a pre-dinner nibble, Dole provides the freshest and highest quality produce available. When you load up on all the nutritional good stuff, you give your meal an instant boost of color, flavor, and texture, plus vitamins and minerals and fiber, everything your body needs to succeed. For nutritional inspiration and to learn more about Dole's fresh, whole, and cut vegetables and a full line of berries, visit Dole.com. With Dole as your partner in health, the possibilities are endless. Visit Dole.com. Now here's something to think about. 
If we're having the same problems in the United States that every other country is struggling with, then are these problems really domestic issues? At what point do we wake up and say, hey, if it's happening to everyone, it means it's happening to our species? That's why I'm asking you to read The Watchman's Rattle, because when you do, you'll see that the very idea that there are domestic and international threats is a myth. All of the problems we face today, problems like unemployment, debt, climate change, terrorism, nuclear proliferation, even the spread of pandemic viruses involve other nations. So please take a moment to pick up the Watchman's Rattle. It's a perspective you'll not find anywhere else, and it offers us solutions you won't find anywhere else. Get the Watchman's Rattle. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. Hi, I'm Andy, the produce manager for Ben Lomond Market. This week, we are featuring large California naval oranges, 59 cents a pound, California broccoli crowns, $1.29 a pound, and California head lettuce, $1.19 each. From Mexico, we have large, beautiful red bell peppers, $1.49 a pound, and dark purple eggplant, $1.49 each. From Oregon, we have large Yukon gold potatoes, 77 cents a pound. In organics, we are featuring California garnet yams, 99 cents a pound, butternut squash, 79 cents a pound, and Washington cameo apples, $1.29 a pound. New items coming in this week include Tahoe gold and tango mandarin tangerines and best ever pears, all eating great. So come, check out our great selection of fresh produce at Ben Lomond Market. When you want straight talk, great service, and the best deals, you will always find them at North Bay Ford in Santa Cruz. Hello, I'm Jeff Winterholder. North Bay Ford is a locally owned dealership with low overhead, friendly, small town values, and the best deals on new and pre-owned cars, trucks, and RVs. Get this, Jeff's deal of the week at North Bay Ford. Wow, you will have fun, lots of fun, while saving money with a new fuel-efficient 252 horsepower 2013 Ford Focus ST. Yes, 252 horsepower from a 2-liter Ford EcoBoost engine will give you lots of fun, and you'll get 23 miles per gallon city and 32 highway. You simply must drive the new Ford Focus ST to believe how much fun you can have saving money on gas. So get on down to North Bay Ford and say, Jeff, put me in a Focus ST. Come standard with variable cam timing, six-speed select shift transmission, and starts at only $24,495 at North Bay Ford. We need a quality pre-owned economy car for your college student, a new family car for your Sunday drives, or a fleet of powerful new trucks for your berry ranches. Look first to your friends and neighbors at locally owned North Bay Ford. 1999 SoCal Avenue, Santa Cruz, or on the web at North Bay Ford. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is American diplomat and expert on Middle Eastern foreign policy, Mr. Dennis Ross. And before the break, we were talking about the fact that none of the carrots or sticks offered to Iran have done anything to this point to slow down the pace of their nuclear program. So let me ask you this. Um, did we participate in the current crisis by not taking any decisive measures for years and years? I mean, you can only rattle your sable, saber for so long before it just becomes background noise. Well, it's a very legitimate question, uh, because particularly with, uh, with a leadership like Iran's, which engages uh, in all sorts of subversion and intimidation in the neighborhood, uh, including, you know, there are probably... 700 American fatalities in Iraq that were a function of uh, some of the some of the Shia extremist groups that were basically trained, 
funded and armed by the Iranians. Mm -hmm. uh, and we tended, during the Bush years in particular, um, but also less so in Obama because it was more prominent during the Bush years, we tended to retaliate within Iraq against those groups, and we didn't... We didn't go the directly. extra step. We didn't... That, that's right. I mean, mm -hmm. you can understand there was a reluctance to want to expand the, the character of the conflict, but the problem is the more they could do that, the more they could see they could get away with it, the more they knew that we knew that they were arming, uh, you know, these groups like Kutaib, Hezbollah uh, in, in Iraq, the more they drew their own lessons about uh, you know what we would tolerate, and so I do think there is there is some risk that over time uh, they have they have come to take less seriously some of what we say uh, in terms of threats. Now, having said that, the Iranian regime is also a highly conspiratorial, suspicious regime, and so sometimes they read the worst into what we're doing as well. So we have a strange duality here, uh, where on the one hand. They think that maybe our threats are, are more hollow than real. On the other hand, they tend to read everything we do as being entirely hostile. But, but we do so have a pattern of doing nothing. So yeah, we do have a pattern of doing nothing or doing very little other than making threats and passing security measures. So, so let me ask you this. When it comes sure. to a preemptive strike, what exactly are we waiting for? I mean, what sign or evidence or data do we need to see to strike? Because, frankly, Israeli leaders have been sounding the alarm for a while now. So what are we waiting for? Well, I would say the following. There's two things that I think we should be looking at. One has to, has to do with the character of their program and what's the point of past which, as I was saying before, we lose confidence that when we say our objective is prevention, we can actually act on that and achieve it. And that depends upon how many centrifuges they have operating, whether they, in fact, introduce new centrifuges that are far more efficient in there, how much accumulated low-enriched uranium do they have, how much accumulated medium-enriched uranium do they have, those all, when you put them together, they could constitute a capability that would allow them to move very quickly before we could we could actually preempt them. So one thing is just that the technical capability, and they're not there yet. But what I was suggesting to you is I believe there's a there's a real possibility that by the end of 2013 or the beginning of 2014, they will be at that point. And you don't want to wait until you get to that point to act. You would have to act at least prior to that. So that's one the second element, I think, uh, relates to do you set a context? Bear in mind one thing. Nobody can destroy the Iranian know-how and engineering capability. We can destroy all their nuclear facilities, but in 2007 they crossed the threshold where on their own they, could, they can build a nuclear weapon without anybody's help. Which so, brings me to this point. I mean, yeah. once somebody's got the knowledge the intelligence, the engineering capability, aren't we talking about containment at that point? We're not really talking about prevention anymore, well, are we? Well, no, you are talking about prevention because you can destroy all the facilities. And, and this gets to my point about context. We need to understand if you use force, it's not the end of the story. If we were to use force, or even if the Israelis were to use force, we can probably set them back. You, you, you hear estimates with, say, one or two years. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, it's much more likely to set them back four or five years. And the four or five years also means that they have to, you know, all the money they invested, they have to reinvest at a time when they're being squeezed economically. So the point here is we want to create a context where it's clear we did everything we could and there was no option short of the use of force because we want to maintain the sanctions after the fact to make it extremely costly for them to try to rebuild, to, in a sense, give them reasons to stretch out and not put all their money into that basket.
uh, and to make it clear that, you know, they can rebuild, but in fact it's going to cost them a lot and nothing says we won't do it again. So the, the point is you can prevent because they actually won't have the capability, but it has to be an ongoing policy and it's very important to create an international context where our ability to maintain the kind of tough sanctions that exist today will be sustained because it will be seen we didn't jump the gun on this. We, we exhausted all the possibilities, and when there were no more possibilities left, we only acted at that point. I understand. So just for the audience, I mean, basically what you're saying is, is that every time the kid starts building the sandcastle, we go over and kick it and knock it back down again, and they got to start from scratch. Only in this particular case, it's extremely expensive and a monumental effort to start all over again. And, uh, exactly and that they'd right. fall behind four or five years, they have to start up again, and they may not have the economic means. Or, uh, right. or and we should add this, the will to do it. That's and let's put it this way, you know, if you ask, you haven't asked me this question, but I'll volunteer it anyway. The answer, I believe that Iran today is where the Soviet Union was in 1981, and what I mean by that is, they have an ideology that nobody believes in. It's an ideology that justifies the supreme leader's rule and the structure, but below the veneer of those who have a stake in preserving the system as it is, nobody in the country believes in it. And so Worse than that, reality, it's crippling their economy, just like the Soviet Union. That's true. And the point is that, you know, you don't know what, what Iran is going to look like in, say, four or five years. So it is a, you have to put this in a larger context as well in terms of what's happening in Iran. And you, if it comes to the use of force, you also want to exercise the use of force in a way that is far more surgical and doesn't give the regime a lease on life. Well, I think we can agree that the Arab Spring has been a bit of a double-edged sword, and given the recent events in Egypt and also the instability elsewhere, I wonder how you feel other Middle Eastern countries would respond to a U.S. strike on Iran. Again, an interesting question. I think that um, what makes this, I think, easier to predict than it might have been is what Iran is doing in Syria. Mm-hmm. You know, understand that the most of the... Uh, the Arab countries of the Middle East are Sunni, Muslims, not Shia. And Iran is seen today as basically propping up and, and assisting the activists, actively assisting in the killing of Sunnis within Syria. So the idea that there's going to be this great outrage uh-huh. in the rest of the region uh, over us doing something that basically we have said for some time, don't be surprised if it comes to this, I think it's an exaggeration to think, oh, my God, we're going to see this great upheaval against us in the aftermath of doing this. You know, if Iran wasn't seen as being part of a killing machine uh, in Syria, the answer might be different because it might look like, once again, we're using force against a Muslim country. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the fact is, I think the context, uh, you keep using that word a lot, you have to look at what's happening in the region. You have to see uh, the kind of broad... Uh, unanimity against the Iranians uh, in Syria. You have, you know, the uh, President Ahmadinejad of Iran has just gone to Egypt because there's the organization of the Islamic Conference was meeting there. Right. And, you, you know, A, there were shoes that were thrown at him, which is there are a few signs that are more disrespectful in the Middle East than that. Yeah, as we learned. Uh, Yes, uh, over the issue of Syria. Yeah. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, um, Mr. Ross, we have to take a commercial break. We have a hard stop here, but I'd like to continue this on the other end of the uh, commercial break. You're listening to the Costa Report. 
We all know that the wrong time to start planning is when we're under fire and there is no time to plan. But it's also true that most of us are not prepared for when we, or a family member, suddenly needs expensive nursing home care. Take your estate, for example. Whether it's small or large, how sure are you that your will is legal? Are your children poised to avoid costly probate and reap the benefits of what you want them to have? Or will they be left, like seven out of 10 families are each year, with piles of paper and no idea of what your intentions were? My name is John Lawton, and I have been helping families through their most difficult transitions in life for over three decades. Beginning in January, I'll be answering your questions about estate planning and elder care in a new segment on the Costa Report called Family Matters. We'll talk about everything from your care, your children, your pets, and your peace of mind. So join me every Friday, starting in January, right here on your favorite weekly news program, The Costa Report. Radio is the best media in the world because you can be productive. You can learn and be creative. Now there's a way to make it 10 times better. This is Bob from C-Crane, and if you have a high-speed Internet connection and a CC Wi-Fi Internet radio, then your reception problems are over. The CC Wi-Fi uses your Internet connection to give you crystal clear reception. It has a dial and a speaker, so it offers a convenience of a regular radio. You can most likely listen to your favorite radio program and stations from back home, even if home is in a different state or country, with absolute clarity. The variety of stations available is incredible. It's a remarkable radio experience. To order a CC Wi-Fi, give us a call at 800-522-8863. That's 800-522-8863. Or visit us online at ccradio.com. C. Crane, the high-performance radio and light company. Severino's Bar and Grill in Aptos has a new menu for the new year with fresh salads, tasty appetizers, and affordable entrees. If you've enjoyed Severino's Bar and Grill before, it's time to come back for the new tastes. If you haven't been by before, come on in. What's stopping you? Severino's is a great place to meet with family or friends. Call 688-8987 or online at seacliffin.com. Try some fantastic new dishes at Severino's Bar and Grill inside the Seacliff Inn off Highway 1 in Aptos. Listen, those are actual sounds of electrical wires shorting out behind the walls of Central Coast homes. Though you can't hear arcing behind your walls, JM Electric Current Safe Home Inspection Equipment can hear them for you. To know if you should call JM Electric for a free electrical safety assessment, answer this question from JM Electric's Chris Jensen. Does your home have dim or flickering lights? If yes, your lights may not be the problem. It may be that you have bad terminal connections, burned or broken wires, bad or burned splices, or overheating circuit breakers that are causing the issue. Flickering lights are worth a look. If you answered yes to Chris Jensen's question, something may be buzzing in your walls. To discover how at-risk your home might be, take JM Electric's home electrical safety test at jmelectric.com. In a few short minutes, you'll know how at-risk your home is to electrical problems. Take the test right now at jmelectric.com or give JM Electric a call at 422-7819 and ask for the free, no-obligation home electrical safety assessment. Tune in to the Sentinel Radio Program Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Brought to you by First Church of Christ Scientist Monterey. Come into our Christian Science Community Reading Room and Bookstore and find comfort from the challenges you're facing. We have the resources that will connect you with your God-given substance. Find help now. Our address is 780 Abrego Street in Monterey. Reach out for this help today. Come in and visit or call 831-372-5076. 372-5076.
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Dennis Ross. And before the break, you were making the point that if U.S. diplomatic efforts fail and the U.S. strikes Iran to stop their nuclear program, the reaction of other Middle Eastern countries is likely to be quite different than, say, when we entered Iraq, for example. Right. And what I was starting to say is, so when the President of Iran goes to Egypt this week because he was there for the Organization of the Islamic Conference Summit, uh, there were shoes thrown at him, and the, the leader of al-Azhar, which is where uh, a lot of the Sunni uh, imams are trained, mm-hmm. uh, and is considered one of the, you know, perhaps the preeminent uh, religious training center uh, for the Sunnis, said to, met him and basically berated him for what Iran is doing in Syria, uh, and went on and said, you have to stop intervening uh, in the Gulf countries and trying to subvert them. So, you know, what you have is a reality that Iran has affected pretty dramatically its image in the region, and it extends not only to Iran but to Hezbollah, you know, who is seen as largely a kind of proxy of the Iranians. It, it, back in 2006, when you had a conflict with uh, between the Israelis and Hezbollah, uh, the fact is Nasrallah, who was uh, Hassan Nasrallah, who was the leader of Hezbollah was sort of celebrated throughout the region. You'd find his pictures everywhere throughout the region. Yes. Now you see his pictures burned yes. because of what they're doing uh, in, in Syria. So I think it's, it, it's important to take into account that something rather dramatic is happening because of what's happening in Syria, and it will affect uh, how whatever actions we take are likely to be seen. Now, there's quite a bit of speculation that any strike on Iran would be initiated by Israel, with the U.S. playing a supporting role. Is that more likely, this scenario, because of the immediate nuclear threat to Israel? I think the way to think about this is that no Israeli prime minister is going to accept a situation where they would lose their military option and yet face an existential threat. And the key, I think, here is... If the Israelis come to believe that the pace of the diplomacy is going to, one, outlast the point where they would still have a military option, and two, if they became convinced that notwithstanding what I was saying before, uh, we would not act militarily, then under those circumstances they would act. But having said that, I think the Israeli preference is uh, for us to do it, that this is really a case of the world against Iran, not Israel against Iran. And so I think their preference is for us to do it if it comes to that. But if they, if they have doubts about whether in the end we will, then the prospect of the Israelis acting goes up pretty significantly. So I'm often asked about this. Um, there are critics who feel that the United States has tied itself too closely to Israel's security and their success. What is your response when you hear that? Well, I, you know, I think it's easy to say that. I think it's just wrongheaded. Um, I mean, look at what's going on in the region today. You know, the only country we can say for certain is a democracy is Israel. The only country we can say for certain uh, is going to be supportive of the U.S. uh, in the region, in international forum, is Israel. Uh, It's a country that when it comes to our intelligence, when it comes to a lot of our military developments, what we've learned, uh, what the Israelis provide us, even now, these days, in terms of what's happening with regard to a lot of interesting innovations in technology. A lot of it comes out of Israel. So we've had a long-standing commitment to Israel, number one. 
this is it's probably no commitment we've made internationally that has been as consistent and as unequivocal as uh, as what we've done with Israel. And so I I don't see I see during a time of great turmoil in the region the relationship is something that's one of our pillars. It doesn't mean it's the only pillar, but it's certainly one of our pillars. And the idea that somehow uh, you know we're too close to the Israelis, it you know the fact is. The awakening in the Arab world, and I prefer to use the term awakening as opposed to Arab Spring, for the reasons you were getting at before, because in Syria there's no Arab Spring. Uh, and in Egypt today, uh, you have the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in charge of the institutions, and it's, it remains to be seen about what their real commitment to democracy is. I, I think they tend to be more authoritarian, but I think the point is that there's been an awakening, and in this process of awakening we see great upheaval. Well, in a time of upheaval, it's pretty important to have someone you can rely upon in the area, and I think that's Israel. Well, the last time I checked, we didn't have too many trusted allies in the Middle East. And there's also no question that Israeli intelligence is extremely valuable, necessary to the United States. In fact, there a lot of people don't know that we do a lot of joint technology development in the areas of electronic countermeasures and other military technologies, and it goes much deeper than just the diplomatic relationship. Uh, you are 100% correct. And, uh, and so, you know, on, we, we rely on them uh, for engineering, for technology, for innovation, uh, for intelligence. Um, this isn't, you know, this isn't a superficial relationship. And you're absolutely correct. I mean, consistency and trust is something that uh, is sorely lacking in global relations uh, between the United States and other countries. So I just, um, I don't understand it when we have critics that go after the most longstanding and most loyal allies of the United States. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, well, I'm with you on that. I, I do think that there are there are those who see a cost for us with Israel's neighbors. But and this is historic. I'm actually doing a new book right now, and I'm looking at the, the first part of the book has to do with the history from Truman through Obama on our relationship with Israel. And for a long time, there's there have been these kind of enduring assumptions that. We couldn't do anything with the Arabs if we were seen as being too close to the Israelis. And yet what was always missed is that for those Arab states who were caught up in their own internal competition with their neighbors, they relied upon us for security. And their own interests would dictate what their relationship with us was going to be. They might not do towards Israel what we wanted, but their relationship with us was shaped by what was important to them. Uh, and as long as they had a need for us, our relationship with Israel in many ways was immaterial. It might make them at times uncomfortable, but they would never, they would never retreat from what they wanted in the relationship with us. And somehow, that fundamental lesson uh, has has missed a lot of people, and and by the way, a lot of analysts who take certain things at face value and don't actually look at behaviors. I tend to be someone who, having been a negotiator for as long as I was, my attitude is I look at what what is actually done by leaders and countries. Right. You want you take uh, a look at their actions. Expect. Yeah. That's their right. their actions, not what they come to the table and say they're going to do. It, it's very interesting. We we have a very unusual definition of the term ally. I mean, I, I've said this before on this program, but we, we call Pakistan an ally in the same breath as we call Israel an ally. I have a problem with this because when we learned that Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan, we didn't tell our ally he was there and that we were going to come in in the middle of the night and take him out. 
Now, I, I don't understand how that's an ally. I, I, if Osama bin Laden was in Israel or, or he was in the U.K., we certainly would have notified them. So I'm, um, I'm confused about yeah. this. And you're, Now, you're an expert diplomat. Do I have it wrong? No, you're applying what I call the common sense model to the Oh, issue. heaven forbid. And uh, I've often <laughs> felt that, and I, you know, I, I, I teach diplomacy, I teach statecraft, and I, uh, and I often focus on with my students, it is not diplomacy to engage in a kind of indirection. Sometimes it's appropriate. You don't need to stick your thumb in somebody's eye. You don't need to be unnecessarily gratuitously provocative. But one of the things about diplomacy, one of the things about negotiation, you really never get ahead by indirection or misleading. And in the case of what you're raising with Pakistan, why are they called an ally? Well, because there are areas where, in fact, we do work with them. Certainly in the counter-terror, we work with them. But obviously, they're also, they have backed forces that have also threatened us and, and done worse than threatened us. Uh, they have played frequently, uh, shall we say, multiple games, had multiple agendas, uh, and they've defined their own needs in such a way where they maintain a preoccupation with India, uh, where they see Afghanistan as being a kind of hedge against India. Uh, and as a result, their posture has been something that at times has been supportive, but at other times has been, frankly, undercutting to what we want. I understand. And, and unfortunately, so we, you know. we, we have to go to another break here. But let me just say this, is that in my view, and my, my father was an employee of the CIA, and I lived overseas in foreign countries for most of my life. Let me just say this. I think the bar in terms of the definition of ally has been set a little lower than when I was growing up. And uh, and maybe we'll we'll find out when we, when we come back if you agree with me or not. We have to take our last break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. You asked and we listened. The new and improved paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle is now available in bookstores everywhere, including airports across the country. If you've been hemming and hawing about not having time to go online or pick up a copy, well, now you don't have any excuses. Find out why government gridlock, terrorism, epidemic obesity, crime on Wall Street, even problems with education and health care have an evolutionary basis to them. Because when you do, you'll never look at our problems the same way. So pick up the freshly printed paperback edition of The Watchman's Rattle. Don't wait. Do it now. Give yourself a real reason to feel optimistic. That's The Watchman's Rattle, available everywhere you are. Hi, I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli, owner of Caraccioli Cellars. I have to say that every time that I've been by, it has been packed with people. It's more of a social environment. Yeah, it's really kind of a meeting place as well in Carmel. A lot of people come and taste a flight of wines before they go to dinner. We have a big screen TV in there. We feed all the games that are local and important, and it definitely becomes a meeting place for people. So you must get a lot of first dates there, maybe? You know, we get a lot of first dates, second dates. A lot of times it's couples that do come in, and we see them again after the first time. I can imagine, and I would suggest that if anyone's thinking about a first date, that might be a really nice place to kick it off. 
One more time now, where is the tasting room located and what are your hours? We're located right in the heart of Carmel-by-the-Sea, right on Dolores between Ocean and 7th. We're open daily from 2 p.m. to 8 p.m. And on Fridays and Saturdays, we actually open up at 11 and stay open till 10 p.m. Welcome to Automated Computer Services, America's most drawn-out tech support line. One moment, please. At any time during this recording, you may press the 5 key should you feel so inclined. Press 1 for Spanish, 2 for Bushman, 4 for a remote dialect in Peru, 5 for English, 6. If you know your party's extension, please wait for your opportunity to dial it. If you'd like to speak with a human, you've called the wrong number. If you've reached this message after hours, please return to the secondary main sub-menu by pressing the pound key seven times, followed by the eight key. If you feel you've reached this recording in error, we wish you better luck next time. Tired of unfriendly computer support? If you're having a computer problem, call the friendly computer experts at User-Friendly Computing. Viruses? Spyware? No problem. We take care of all your PC, Macintosh, and laptop needs. Visit us today at 505 River Street on the way to downtown Santa Cruz, across from Gateway Plaza. Call us today at 423-9653. User-Friendly Computing. Dave, what are you doing? Just sending a gift to Dave2037. Who? Me in the future. I save a little money from every paycheck for Dave 2037 so he can buy anti-gravity boots or a hologram Doberman. What are you getting Steve 2037? Steve 2037 will be just fine. Okay, but don't expect to borrow my anti-gravity boots. Save something for the future. Put away a few bucks. Feel like a million bucks. For free ways to save, go to feedthepig.org. That's feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants and the Ad Council. Hey, I'm Ethan Behrman. Join me each week on Smoke-Filled World as I cut through the smog of politics and current events to bring key issues and the figures behind them into sharper view. Listen and find out what's going on in the world and why. Guests, news, politics, issues, insight, and your calls. Each week with ideas that are left, right, and straightforward. Listen to Ethan Behrman's Smoke-Filled World, 6 to 8 p.m. Sundays here on Listen and Be Heard Radio, AM 1080, KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest has been a foreign policy advisor in five administrations, Mr. Dennis Ross. And before the break, I was saying that our standards for being called a U.S. ally might be a little low these days, particularly when we call countries who we trust. And on the other hand, we don't trust, such as Pakistan, a U.S. ally. What do you think about that? Well, I also think the term ally is is used too loosely. Uh, First of all, an ally should be someone that you can actually count on. An ally is someone that on strategic issues and strategic objectives, there's agreement. It doesn't require you agree on everything because, you know, there'll be tactical differences. But on the core issues, on fundamental issues, they can be counted on. Is Pakistan an ally? No. Thank you. Thank thank you for saying that. I I feel like I'm the lone voice out here saying, why are we calling Pakistan an ally? I I think we're calling Pakistan an ally because we give them a lot of money. You're right. And we, and we call them an ally because there are some things on which we do, we work very closely. Look, they have, there is no doubt that Pakistanis have suffered dramatically from terror, maybe as much if not more than any other country in the world. And there is a great deal that we do with them in terms of counter-terror cooperation. But simply because you cooperate in an area doesn't make you an ally, and simply because you provide assistance doesn't make you an ally. You can provide, we can provide assistance because we understand we have some common objectives and where we're going to serve those common objectives we will provide support but 
that represents one manifestation of a relationship. It's not the sum total of the relationship. And for there to be a, a what I would call uh, a relationship of being an ally, then it should, it, sh it should reflect common values. It should reflect common interests. It should reflect, as I said, a basic convergence on what's important. Uh, and by that standard, the, the number of allies we have is obviously uh, a lot smaller than some people would, would normally describe. I, I agree with you. I, in fact, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, moving right along, uh, we have a new Secretary of State, and I have to imagine that walking into this position following these recent attacks on U.S. citizens abroad is going to be pretty challenging. You, you have a long history where American foreign policy is concerned. So let me ask you, from your perspective, where does Kerry first focus his attention? Well, obviously, there'll, there'll be some things that, uh, in a sense, he needs to address. He needs to, to follow up on, on what Secretary Clinton was doing in terms of trying to reconcile how do we have a presence diplomatically in places where the central authority is, is really quite weak. And so I think that's, that will be something that he'll obviously take a look at. I think in terms of his broad priorities, I think his broad priorities are going to be in the greater Middle East, what we've been talking about. I think mm -hmm. he'll have uh, a priority with Iran because I think this year is going to be decisive one way or the other. Either, either we find a diplomatic way out, meaning there's a deal, which I do think there's a possibility that a deal is, can be achieved, or we'll see the prospect of the use of force go up pretty high. I think that you'll see him also make an effort on the Israelis and the Palestinians because the stalemate there serves neither one's interests. Um, I'm very worried that the stalemate is creating such a such a deep disbelief that it'll be hard to do anything, and the, the very idea of a two-state outcome may be lost. Uh, and if a two-state outcome is lost, then I'm afraid the future identity of the Palestinians may become an Islamist one. If that's the case, then there's very little prospect of settling the conflict. I do think he'll have a priority with Afghanistan and Pakistan, what we were just talking about. Uh, all these, I think, they're not to say there aren't other issues he'll work on, but I believe these are, are likely to grab uh, a great deal of his attention. And, and where does North Korea's nuclear program fit into that? Well, I think, you know, we'll, we'll continue to try to work with the other countries that have been part of the six-party talks mm -hmm. to try to contain As, as far them. as we know, they're not as advanced as Iran is at this point. Well, right? they're no, they're more advanced. They're more advanced, actually, is that right? Yes, the, yes they've mm -hmm. tested they've tested nuclear weapons. The Iranians haven't done that. The Iranians aren't there yet. They haven't weaponized. North Korea has weaponized, and North Korea is testing uh, long-range rockets and missiles as well. Mm -hmm. So they're actually, you know, the, we the get these mixed. Is, we get these mixed reports when they uh, fire off these weapons. They may have been right. nuclear. They may not have been nuclear. You know, well, I, I, I mean, Google Maps can. You can see me uh, drinking coffee in my kitchen. You know, with uh, Google World or whatever that thing is. Right. I mean, you can zero right down to my front yard and see me throwing the ball for my dog. I don't understand why we get these mixed reports that these tests may or may not have been nuclear. Well, I think it's, look, there is no doubt that they have conducted nuclear weapons tests, and we know that, mm -hmm. and we've said it, uh, and we've warned them against doing more of it, and we've and said there's no prospect of any, of life improving, having any sanctions lifted, uh, unless they, they change course here. 
ultimately, we don't have the influence on them that the Chinese have because the Chinese are their main provider of food and fuel. Uh, now, the Chinese, I think, when they approach North Korea, the last thing they want is for North Korea to collapse uh, into them. So North Korea kind of has the power, what I call the power of the weak vis-a-vis the Chinese because the Chinese have, have in fact been prepared to pressure them, but there's always a limit as to how much they're prepared to pressure them because they don't want to produce a collapse. Well, is this a case where our uh, preventative measures have failed and we're into containment? Uh, it certainly looks like that, yes. Uh-huh. So we've tried all these diplomatic tools that we're using now. And uh, and we now have not been successful at prevention, and uh, now we're doing our best to contain North Korea. Actually, but, not us, but China. Yeah, well, the, well, yes. I mean, you do have six parties that have coordinated here, and that includes the Japanese, South Korea, us, uh, the Russians, and the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, it's kind of disturbing when we look all around here. <laughs> I'm taking well, I, a deep you know, breath. I'm, I'm taking a deep breath here. I, you know, I happen to hear the optimism that's uh, the undercurrent in what you're saying, which is that you still hold out hope that Iran will come to their senses. Um, and uh, and I, I think that I speak for all the American people. We certainly don't want to get engaged in another strike and and uh, and deal with uh, with any kind of military action if we can avoid it. But sometimes those things are just not avoidable. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, along those lines, you know, you've worked for multiple presidents and you've been called upon to make recommendations during war and peace. Is, is there any single recommendation or position that you took that you uh, that you later turned out to be uh, even more justified or more correct than you even knew at that time? Um, I think that there were, yeah, I think there were times when I made certain kind of recommendations that at the time you couldn't be sure if it was right or not. Uh, you know, I, I think um, I did a lot of I did a lot of work at one point um, during the first Bush administration, being George H. W. Bush, forty-one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was I pushed early on for us to anticipate that the wall might come down. Uh, in Germany, and you did. You were uh, right out front on that. Yeah, I was, and uh, I had. I mean, to be fair, I had. Uh, I had an office, and I had people working for me who, at a time when the conventional wisdom, including in most of the State Department, was German unification was kind of an illusion. It was, you know, it was like a millennium away. Mm-hmm. And in the spring of 1989, uh, I had a couple of people work for me on the policy planning staff go to Germany and they came back and they felt we should start planning for the possibility because they thought you know, the kind of changes that were unfolding in Eastern Europe were of the sort that uh, big changes could happen very quickly with very little notice, including the wall coming down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, against over the opposition of many of uh, my colleagues in the State Department, I went to the Secretary and I said, I think we have to think about this and I think we have to position ourselves. And uh, while I was you know, accused of being sort of romantic and <laughs> naive. My wife thought that was an interesting way to describe me, but um, uh, it turned out that that was the right call. And, and when the wall did come down, because we had done the planning, we we were able to position ourselves very well. 
Well, Mr. Ross, I have to say that you have been in the forefront of many decisions, including uh, agreements that were forged, uh, discussions between the Syrians and uh, the Israelis. Uh, You've just really been out there in the forefront. And uh, we are out of time for today, but I really wanted to take a moment to thank you for your great service to our nation and for being out on the forefront and for risking a little bit of that uh, uh, that humiliation when you stand in, in the middle of the Oval Office and you say, this is what I think is going to happen, and everyone rolls their eyes back <laughs> and <laughs> and says, what the heck happen, is yeah. this guy? Yeah, what the heck is this to- guy talking about? I, I yeah. want to thank you for making time to be with us today, Mr. Ross. Well, thank you for your very kind words. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to have appeared. If your station is leaving us after this first hour, my guest next week is retired United States General Barry McCaffrey. McCaffrey was the drug czar under President Clinton, was a leading figure during the Gulf War. McCaffrey will be with us to talk about the growing threat to U.S. security domestically and abroad and what steps the current administration must take to ensure the safety of our country. Don't miss General Barry McCaffrey next week right here on the Costa Report. Now stay tuned for the second hour of the Costa Report when we take your calls. Hi, I'm Judy Profeta, owner, broker, and active real estate agent of Alon Pinnell Realtors, a locally owned real estate company. We've operated on the peninsula for over 16 years, currently located on the corner of Ocean and Dolores and Unipero between 5th and 6th in downtown Carmel. We serve the Monterey Peninsula, focusing on Carmel, Pebble Beach, and the Carmel Valley. Our firm of about 50 agents represents everything from Carmel Cottages to Pebble Beach Estates and oceanfront properties to Valley Vineyards. We are actually known for our vast inventory of fine properties. Drop by and see us, or better yet, visit our website at apr-carmel.com. That's apr-carmel.com. Or you can give us a call at 831 621-1040 and make sure you tell them Judy sent me. The original Stagnero family has been in business since 1879. The Stagnero name stands for quality, quantity, and great service. The family's Gilda's restaurant on the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf is still the fishing headquarters of the Santa Cruz area. It's where fishermen gather each morning for coffee and breakfast before heading out on the bay. Stop by Gilda's and say hi. Dino looks forward to meeting you at Gilda's on the center of the Santa Cruz Municipal Wharf. Michael Olson's first law of the food chain. Agriculture is the foundation upon which we build all our sandcastles. That's right, folks. No surplus of food, no sandcastles. So before we all get upset from the dust and noise of agriculture, let's get together Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show goes behind the scenes of the industry that keeps us all civilized. If you have a comment about the first law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSEO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What radio on the food chain. What day was that? Red Hot News Talk, AM 1080, KSEO Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.